Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody, and welcome back to ourselves. I'm the aforementioned Sal, and of course we have Eagle One from Eagle Speak with us as well. We are your co-hosts for Midrats. For those that have forgotten, being that we've been off the uh, off the air for a few weeks, I don't know if you want to call it. Um, um, sick leave or uh, rest and uh, relaxation week or just life is busy. Maybe a combination of all three, but we are back and in style today. And lucky for everybody here, this is the ever-famous Midrats Melee free-for-all format. What that means is we are open topic, open mic, um, open ideas, open minds, and also open phones. If you look over uh, at the show page, if you're with us live, you have our switchboard phone number. Now, if you want to call in, we'll go ahead and take it, or you can jump jump into the chat room. We already have uh, Jack, and we have our good friend Paul. They're already in the chat room. You can join them, and you can put your questions right there, or if you have your observations you would like to share during the course of the show, we'll be monitoring it as well. And, of course, I have my handy-dandy little iPad even though Apple doesn't sponsor the show, uh, open. So if you just wanted to DM me on Twitter or at me at Twitter, whatever you want to do with a question or a topic you would like for us to address, we will be more than happy to do that. And I always want to uh, give the altar call here at the beginning of the show. I know people have stuff to do. And remember, if you got to leave and take care of some business halfway through the show, you won't miss anything. Just go over to iTunes, Spreaker, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Look up Midrats and go ahead and subscribe to us. It's going to get you for free, and then we will be available for you at a time that's more convenient. And, uh, hey, Eagle One, it's good to talking to you. Good afternoon. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a long time, and we should probably explain to people just out of the kind of sore hearts that, that uh, illness did play a part in this, uh, our, our absence, and then the other part of it was sometimes we just – as Sal said, we just get busy, <laughs> and, and uh, Sunday becomes inconvenient for family reasons and other stuff. But uh, we're back. I'm glad to have everybody with us. I'm sad to say that my chat room doesn't seem to be working today, but I'll see if I can fix that as the show proceeds and uh, go from there. Yeah, right before so the show talk started, I, I, re- yeah, I, I restarted right before the show went going because I was having the same problem, and it's come back up. It won't let me make any comments. I was going to say hi to uh, Paul and Jack, but it won't let me leave a comment. However, it is scrolling. I can't see it, so it just might be um, just a little fidgety here and there. Uh, I didn't put it in the show notes, but I was in, you inspired me during the pre-show discussion. And uh, simply because nothing will elicit more excitement than uh, saying U.S. Marine Corps, <laughs> maybe that will bring them out of the woodwork. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's the big hell call, but... Um, you brought up a topic that I think we definitely want to to touch on because especially before we we went into our availability period in February, 
it was, and it's still bubbling up as a conversation point. And that has to do with the various machinations, ideas, and uh, retro concepts with a modern twist that we're seeing in response to the U.S. Marine Corps' uh, EABO concept in the Western Pacific. And the various ways they're trying to answer the question about with the relatively uh, lower than desired number of traditional amphibious ships in our fleet, how exactly they're going to be able to do the deployment, care, and feeding of Marines scattered all over the various islands, atolls, over in Westpac. Uh-oh. Are you there? I guess I should have put a question mark on that. <laughs> no, I just want to roll that, too, because um, that, that that's something that I know you've been doing a lot of th- thinking about. So, um, you know, what are like the, the, the top couple of things that pop into your mind that are either either interesting, controversial, or just uh, seems like it might be an answer? Well, uh, we, as I think we've discussed before, but we should raise it again. I mean, the light amphibious warship the Marines are looking at supposed to be, was supposed to be a low-cost, uh, minimally armed... Uh, oh, can you try again? <laughs> there, we, thank you, Siri. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I didn't get that either. We have a heckler. Uh, we have a heckler. Yeah, uh, it was supposed to anyway. Low cost, low speed, really fourteen knot capable. It's supposed to be able to hide among uh, uh, commercial traffic and and all kinds of stuff. And then and then we find the Marines saying, well, uh, when the Navy says, well, we want a, more armament, we want to be able to protect the people who are driving this ship. Uh, the Marines go, well, you know, really, even though it says warship in its name, it, we're not. It's not really a warship. It's just going to drop Marines off and then go hide somewhere and stay out of harm's way well that <laughs> that seems uh, uh difficult if you're going to move marines around so they're not trapped on the same little island or big island uh that 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 rotation and go hide somewhere that seemed to be a, a, a great idea and then uh, darpa came up with a with another super duper idea which is this what they're calling the uh the uh, Liberty Lifter, which is a ground effect aircraft uh, capable of, of ground effect flight and being able to fly up to 10,000 feet um, to carry payloads similar to that of a of a C-17 Globemaster. And they, they not only have come up with this concept, they've actually put out uh, uh, money, I guess, for teams to start preparing a design. So... Uh, what they're saying is this thing is going to be uh, capable of, of on-water operations up to sea state five, uh, extended flight close to water ground effect with the capability to fly out of ground effect altitudes up to 10,000 feet. And uh, the General Atomics team is working with the Maritime Applied Physics Corporation and Aurora Flight Sciences, uh, and who are working with Gibbs and Cox and Recon Craft, got enough people involved, money gets spread everywhere, uh, are looking at a twin-hull mid-wing design to optimize on-water stability and seakeeping, which means you have actually two aircraft size, you know, uh, fuselages, uh, and uh, 12 turbo shaft engines to propel this thing. Uh, I can't wait. And it's supposed to be low cost, too, of course. So 
Um, yeah. Cost, yeah, I want I want to see this thing. I want to I want to I want to I want to ride in one is what I want to do. I love the you know the when I was when I was a young officer the the Caspian Sea monster the the uh, ground effect aircraft that the the Soviet Union had. I mean that was to strike terror in all the hearts of us uh, surface warfare guys because it could go fast. It well, you know it was like an airplane but harder to find because it was going to be down below. A lot of radar range and had all kinds of missiles and it was really cool looking and frightening. So, uh, if the Marines can move around with something like this, maybe this is maybe this is the answer to that fourteen knot question that that uh, I posed earlier. That they they can go around in a hurry with this with these uh, Liberty lifters. Yeah, if people haven't looked at the picture, I would encourage them just to to, to Google DARPA Liberty lifter. I would put in the chat room, but again, it won't let me. Um, uh, well, first of all, I, I just kind of figured being the, the aviation maintenance officer responsible for doing the PMS and the dailies and the weeklies on uh, all of those engines, but uh, I was lurking on a few people who have good knowledge of, of seaplanes and a, folks, a couple of folks that have been to this radical thing called amphibious warfare school who describe, based upon the pictures they have taken, that assuming something that big and slow would make it to the beach without getting a wing blown off uh, because you can say what you want to about an amphibious ship. Most of them can, can take a, a few hits and keep moving forward if you don't hit the, the uh, engine room. But they said that there's very limited number of beaches. You could actually do that um, and be able to not breach your hull or not be able to uh, leave again You'd have to hit the tide just right on the right type of beach. And if you, you know, took a, a couple of the individuals actually made the effort of looking at possible places in the Pacific, you would actually want to use this. And they go, you can't use this anywhere. Unlike, I hate to say it, unlike something like a uh, traditional seaplane, you can actually open up the, the, the cargo door and, and dump people into a boat if you need to. This thing, you have to open up its, its head uh, like you do on a C5 to be able to disgorge things, so it has to be on terra firma. So it's really limited. Looks like a maintenance idea. I think it's a neat idea, but is it actually practical in a wartime situation? I don't really think so. Uh, the the light amphibious warfare, which is kind of the traditional, you know, LCM landing craft medium or LST landing ship tank designs, but you know, why have an LST if you don't have any tanks? Being that the Marine Corps got rid of theirs. But um, there's also some real interesting writing on different options there. And one of the things that uh, the Congressional Research Service did a nice report on it. Again, people can look it up. Uh, Ron O'Rourke and his um, legion of people who work over there should all, you know, be given free cars or something. They do great work. But on, I think it's a page 20 or 22 of that document, um, it outlines something that, uh, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot. We've talked to John Conrad, Sal Marcagliano. Um, we've talked to uh, Brian McGrath, Jerry Hendricks. Uh, we, we've talked to all four sorts of folks about this and, you know, Huntsman as well. Uh, has to do with the industrial base. Now, the Navy, again, the efficiency versus effectiveness point of view, it has stated um, 
and it discusses it at page 20 or 22 of the document. The Navy has stated that it would like to do the most efficient thing, which is have one place, one shipyard, build it. But there's an argument that can be made if you want to open up the aperture a bit, it may, it's, it not may, it will cost more per unit. But from an industrial point of view and to help us maintain a diverse uh, shipyard capability that's scalable, that the smart answer is actually to build it, build them, because you're going to build them in number if you do, at, and it's not a real complicated warship, it's not a nuclear submarine, build them at as many different shipyards as possible to spread the money around, um, and that way you have more people, more welders, more electricians, more shipfitters, more supply chains in local areas, uh, more facilities in local areas that can keep their door open that this would be an opportunity to do less of an accountant's bean counting solution is to, you know, maybe build one or two less units, but build it at two, three, four, or more shipyards and help the longer-term priority, uh, which is maintaining our industrial base and our skilled workforce. I thought that was a really, really good point. I'd like to, to read more details on it, but I haven't seen anybody besides the references in the uh, CRS report really address that. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, if if I understand what they're trying to do with these these smaller ships is, it, that would be perfect. I mean, that's how they build LSTs. They were building LSTs, uh, you know, on the, on the Mississippi River, I think. They were building them all over the country. And I, uh, that makes perfect sense to me. Let's spread the word, the work around, get people excited about doing these jobs. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm old enough to remember LSTs that were from the World War II era, and I, I don't understand why we have to reinvent the wheel. They were, they were uh, if you're only going to do 14 knots, you don't need to have much more than a, than a World War II LST, because that's what they, about what they could do. So were, were, were I'm they, sure. Do you remember whether they were, they were steam plant or were they diesel? Uh, well, I think they were diesel. I don't, uh, I don't remember specifically, Especially but the the modern marine diesel um, plants that are being produced right now, really, I mean, it's hard to say a diesel engine is sexy, but if you're an engineer, they're sexy. They're modern. They're efficient. They don't require armies of people to maintain them. There's, um, if, if you can get past gas turbines. On, on some type of warship and just have a diesel, it is a, there's a lot of, yeah, you may give up some speed, maybe, um, but boy, do you gain some other things. You know, maybe you don't need to do 28 knots when 21 will be fine. That's, you know, it's, it, it's something to think about, but I think you're right. I think they were diesels, but a much older generation diesels. The new diesels just are impressive. Yeah, the, uh, there's a great book. Uh, about prime movers and and the diesel engine, um, how it has affected the big diesels, the great big, the great big ones you're talking about. The, it uh, it's really amazing. So uh, at some point I'll remember what the name of the book is. <laughs> remember, God, we talked about it quite a few times last decade. Is um, one of the one of the like. Right before the drop flop and 
the littoral combat ship reached the drop, flop, and foam stage is you had the CNO at the time. I don't know which one it was. Maybe it was Greener. I don't know. Uh, stated, well, in response to people's concern about the you know, survivability of LCS, said, well, you know, it's really fast. It can run away if combat ever shows up. It's like, I mean, quit calling it a combat ship if you don't intend for it to go in harm's way. And um, I think kind of a, a self-own or a self-goal in this whole discussion is, you know, of the light amphibious warfare ship is, you know, the W stands for warfare, and yet they're talking about it in strictly a peacetime sustainment point of view, saying that, well, you know, we're not going to have these things chugging around the South China Sea in, in time of combat. They're going to, you know, go away, retreat, get out of harm's way. I don't think with the size of our fleet, we had the luxury of designing that con ops for war. And I think I'm, I'm willing to put a, a paycheck on this. If that comes, those ships are going to go in harm's way. We don't have that luxury. Sailors are going to be asked to take whatever ships they can to accomplish the mission at hand. And they're not going to be able to, to look up at, you know, seventh fleet and go, you know, sorry, Admiral, um, you know, general Berger said in, in 2022 that, I'm not allowed to go into harm's way with this boat. I mean, it's just, it's just not going to work. I'm not saying that these things need to be bulletproof. You can, you can assume some more risk, but I think at off the bat, saying that this is just a, a peacetime asset, I don't, I don't understand that. I'm willing to be educated, but I, when I first read that, I thought it was in misprint until I saw it in three other four articles. I just think that's, that's put the entire. The entire operation, I think, in, in jeopardy because it doesn't solve, it doesn't um, answer the follow-on question. And uh, specifically, anybody in Congress can just ask, why should I buy something for the military that the military can't use at war? So it's a valid critique. Yeah, well, I, I think I, I wonder if that was a response to the criticism of, of the fact that this thing is so lightly armed and. Um, you know, that <laughs> the response to that is, well, yeah, it is lightly armed because we don't really intend to make it. It's not going to, it's not going to storm the beaches. It's going to drop guys off and, and, uh, and then, and then go away and come back and pick them up later on. I mean, I assume that's kind of what the thought process was that in defense of, of the, cause you know, the Marines, the Marine idea was that these things would be very inexpensive to build. And the Navy got into it and said, well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't provide as a enough weaponry, and it doesn't provide enough safety for the uh, for the for the crews, the the Navy crews, and you know, like essentially doubled the cost, I think, or 1.5 times the the Marine Corps guess of what it would cost. So I I I, I just I, you know, which isn't too surprising since once the Navy gets involved in in uh, matters like that, they want to they want it to be Tiffany and not. Um, Renault or <laughs> or uh, which you know you go <laughs> go and there are, are are very admirable things about you know how we design warships and we'll see whether we screw up the Constellation class frigate which <laughs> you know okay um, it's good that we have a higher uh, survivability standard than perhaps a, a bunch of our allies. Uh, you know, it, 
if you need a 10 but you have a 9.7, you know, is it really worth what you need to do to get that additional point through? Don't know. Uh, as we saw with the most recent examples, you know, you can go back to the coal. Um, and, God, that was a long time ago. We had Kirk Lippold on to talk about that. But you also had the McCain and Fitzgerald. With no notice, our sailors do damage control exceptionally well, and a lot of that's the way our ships are designed. Um, but uh, I think you can overdo it in some regards if you have a smaller ship, uh, which, again, it goes back why I thought the argument about the littoral combat ship were, were bravely turned its tail and fled in the face of the enemy. It's not a response. You don't want a disposable ship, but you you know there's nothing wrong with – acknowledging the fact that, you know, you have a trade-off here, especially in your smaller ships, that, yeah, they're going to be more vulnerable. That's why we're building them in number. But, uh, you know, not everything can be a titanium-encased sphere because then you can't do anything else. Uh, I I think that the the macro argument, not necessarily the one that's being made, the macro argument for bringing in an LSM, LST, I think we got rid of our last LST in the mid to early double zeros, maybe. I think that argument can be made. Um, I think we we had a, an episode right after that, um, one of the many natural disasters in Haiti, where it was uh, our heavy lifts and well, any lift, rotary wing, but also our amphibious ships were the only ones that could get ashore. You know, there's a, a lot of capability in having things besides a large deck amphib they can get uh, personnel and material across the beach. And the LSM, LST size, it's it's something that is missing from our, our toolkit. Some of our allies have it. Uh, there's no guarantee that when you want your allied equipment, allies' equipment, that they're going to, one, show up, and two, if they do show up, their national caveats will let them get within XX nautical miles of where you need them to go. Mm, spoken like a true NATO hand. <laughs> I'm still in therapy over dealing with NATO national caveats. I'll recover maybe next decade. Oh man! Well, speaking of things that affect sailors, uh, you 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 put in the the blurb for the show that uh, uh, we're going to talk about San Diego's parking. Tell people what that's about. <laughs> yeah. Well, and again, this. Uh, I would I would ask for the indulgence to our, our kind and gentle listeners. Uh, indulge me on this. I have there a few things will trigger me. A lot of things will trigger me. But um, one thing that really really frustrated me, especially in um, uh, the the juicy center of my career, and when you're is this true when you're on? I have a preference for small and medium sized bases mostly because um, you get better support for your sailors. You can get some things done more effectively. Um, it's, uh, it's a better quality of work, better quality of life. I'm extremely biased against Naval Station Norfolk, Naval Station San Diego, uh, writ large, and you know, uh, NAS Jacksonville, Oceana. They're huge. And just getting on and off base during um, – the, the peak periods, uh, it's it's quasi-traumatizing because there's just so many people there that we packed in because we have this, you know, mid-1900s industrial concept of what it means to employ people. And uh, there's, and 
I'm going to uh, give everybody a little preview of what my post is going to be tomorrow, except because I have to. It's back on – you can't pick stuff better than this. On Valentine's Day, the commanding officer of Naval Base San Diego uh, sent out a um, a letter, which I'm sure it's record message traffic too, but I just had the letter uh, – for an immediate change to policy on NAVBASE San Diego instruction, 10,000 words and letters, about illegal parking. Um, and there, uh, let's see, what, what, here's a couple of quotes from it. Uh, as I can, uh, as I can uh, hear, hear the commanding officer of Naval Base San Diego uh, raging through the closed door on this. On average, they, um, Naval Base San Diego responds to 20 calls for service a day for illegally parked vehicles over 100 towed a month. And what they're going to do, it's gotten so bad. And most of this, I have been told, is just people parking where it looks like a parking spot. Because uh, when I checked in with a few folks, I said, hey, your, your average standard issue sailor having problems getting a decent parking spot. How much, how much a day is this chewing up of their time having to get from their parked car to get to their command? It's like, well, you know, obviously it depends upon where you are. Um, but they said, yeah, this is probably an hour to two hours for some people just to be able to get to work from where they have to park their car. So people are looking at, okay, there's not a line here, but this looks like a parking spot and it's considered illegal. But they're implementing a uh, a point system now in San Diego where people who are illegally parked, even this stuff that says don't park here, will be issued a federal magistrate citation with two points against and their vehicle may be towed, probably have the limitations of the number of tow trucks available. But they will have their installation driving privileges suspended for 30 days to get a parking ticket, which means that sailor that was maybe he was lucky and it only cost him 45 minutes a day. Uh, now it's going to cost him closer to two hours because he's going to have to park off base or find somebody to pick him up, take him in. And uh, you get two, two points for each illegal one. And if um, you get six months, uh, six points in a 12-month, nine points in a 24, or 12 points in a 36-month period, uh, you will lose your driving privileges for a full year. It, I was having flashbacks and eye twitches from some um, difficult experiences for, for not so much me, but for a lot of the sailors that I remember from the 1990s in Norfolk. Um, you know, these policies are being made by people who have assigned parking spots um, where they can, you know, their their transit to their primary mode it can be measured in seconds and sometimes before they cross a quarter deck. Uh, San Diego actually I think is the best place in the world if you've got to walk uh, 30 minutes, 45 minutes one way to get to your command, some, you know, because it's San Diego. It's beautiful weather. It's raining. But picture the people in – Norfolk, picture the people in Groton, picture the people in Jacksonville, Florida, during the worst part of the year, whether it's winter and black ice if you're up in Groton or Newport, uh, which I don't think is that bad because they're small bases. Um, but uh, summertime in, in Virginia and Florida, it's hell. It's raining. It's just, it's, it's one of those things that uh, this has been known for decades. We spend an incredible amount of money on incredibly stupid things, and we've all talked to sailors who have the list of why I want to come in, why I want to come out and get out of the Navy, why I will reenlist, 
why I won't recommend anybody join the Navy. Some things you can't, can't do anything about, some things you can. In the civilian sector, if major companies treated their employees for something as basic as where they will park their primary transportation in order for them to be able to work for you the way the Navy did, those companies would be bankrupt or their board of directors would fire their senior leadership and replace it because you cannot keep your best employees when you treat them like trash. And I fully understand the frustration that the commander of Naval Base San Diego has. Uh, other base commanders have it. Um, uh, re- regional commanders have it. Uh, they don't control most of them. What is built or not built on their property, it really goes to D.C. It goes to Congress to be able to fund those things and probably the EPA in a couple of places. But it just it was a reminder to me because I left active duty 13 and change years ago uh, that those things that date back decades, we just we, we tell our sailors, um, suck it up. Want a good parking spot? Green for command, be the command master chief, or win one at a raffle. Besides that, you need to be at work by 6 o'clock in the morning so you can start your walk from your car at 515. It just it just triggered me. Maybe I'm overreacting a bit. Maybe I'm too sensitive. But I just remembered a lot of conversations I had with other officers and also some sailors uh, about their experiences on these large bases. And uh, it's reached a point in San Diego, at least, that the commander's got to do something quite draconian because sailors want to show up to work on time, and uh, they're getting in trouble for it. It's just, it's just, it's a, it's an unforced error, I think. Yeah, it's, I don't. You know, there was a time when, when, and I always wonder about whether our parking situation, uh, why it hasn't gotten any better. Dated back when sailors E three and below maybe couldn't have cars at all. I mean, it's kind of like when you're in when you're in college and the the freshmen uh, weren't allowed to have cars back in the day because it just created enormous problems for parking. I mean, it's, so if if you're if your largest number of people on on board ships at E3 and below, uh, then and they and they can't have cars, that that does simplify parking problems. But we that rule went away, so. Uh, you know, then that's it, it is the obligation, I think, of the employer to provide parking for the, the sufficient number of, of people to uh, get to work. That's that's part of the that's part of the mission of the employer. And the employer in this case is not uh, CO Naval Base uh, San Diego. It's it, as you said, it's properly up in the upper levels of DOD and Congress to fund adequate. Uh, Parking areas for the for the sailors, who are well, many of whom are forced to live by cost, to far farther away from the uh, from their offices, then uh, then then you know it makes it even harder for them if they have to live in you know 20 or 30 miles away or 40 miles away just to get to get in and then to find out there's no place to park. That creates a nightmare situation, and uh, I'm, I'm reminded of, of Robert Townsend, the guy who started Avis Rent-A-Car years ago. He wrote a book called uh, Up the Organization, and one of the things he said about reserve parking spots uh, for his executives and stuff was he did away with them. He said, if you, <laughs> if, if you uh, 
if you're so important and you need to be there, get there early. You'll, you'll find a parking right where you want it. And if otherwise, you'll find that you meet a lot of really nice people in the parking lots. And, uh, you know, you get to know your workers. You get to know your workers. So uh, I'm kind of at the Townsend School. You know, unless there's some uh, true necessity for for uh, somebody to have a reserved parking spot. And, it, you know, I, I go back to the to the days in front of the Navy Exchange when they, when the, uh, you know, there'd be reserved parking for flags and and then captains and and you know but it was usually the the captain's wife or somebody who would be parking in that spot you know it, it how big a deal is it if we're if we're physically fit enough to 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 be as as we all know we are because we passed the prts um then it shouldn't hurt you to walk the extra 50 60 100 feet or 100 yards to get where you're going and if you really need to be there at a certain time to to be in charge get there early enough and you know maybe that maybe we're saying well it's hard enough being a CEO of a ship without having to to uh, to walk 250 yards or get up at you know an extra hour early to be there but to me uh, the average sailor needs to to be treated with respect we would treat any employee of, of of this, you know, let's 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 look at the GS situation in the Pentagon. You know, or how many people there uh, can't find parking? I and mean, I think the answer is few, because that's a huge parking lot, and that's the way it ought to be on the on the naval bases. Yeah, it, it's again, it's it's one of those simple and straightforward things that, uh, and I like the fact that you mentioned that you know used to be you know, a lot of people lived on base can't do that anymore. Um, and you know you can't tell you're trying hard to recruit you know you look at the average struggle we have to recruit i'll just use an example somebody who's worth their weight in gold a nuclear machinist mate you know a lot of those guys already have college degrees <laughs> they're smarter than i am they're really good guys and gals um and we need them we you don't want um a a, a lower quartile person in your nuclear plant, and we're going to tell them, hey, you know, you need to show up. You need to show up at the park lot at 5:15, so you can drive 45 minutes through uh, through driving rain to work 12 hours, and then you can walk 45 minutes back. And then because you uh, uh, you have two kids, you live 45 minutes away to an hour away, then you can drive back. So you're going to work 12 hours a day. You're going to have 90 to 120 minutes commute, and you're going to have another 90 minutes of walking uh, in the outside in all weather. Uh, please sign your reenlistment paperwork. It doesn't work that way. Not in this, not in this economy. Not with, not in the fight for quality. And you look at all these. Uh, a lot of our listeners do live in parts of the country that are you know doing all right. You look at all the new construction that's going on, uh, especially multifamily housing. Uh, what are they putting in? They're they're putting in multi-layer parking garages. Uh, you go on a lot of our naval bases. What do you have? Acres and acres of one-layer parking um, because somebody has decided that's there's value in saving money from building a parking garage than there is in creating quality of work and quality of life uh, for people who have decided to serve. It's not a big thing, and it's pretty – having good, effective, timely ability to park your car to come into work, it's a fairly egalitarian activity. It, it Whether you have assigned parking spots right next to the ship or not, 
Uh, it's going to help your E3. It's going to help your E8. It's going to help your O1, your O3. Um, everybody on up by having that, if not directly, by having better parking, but by having sailors who don't show up in the morning already pissed off and bitter because for the second day of the row, they showed up soaking wet, um, if not from sweat, from from rain. And they're working off of their day five of four hours of sleep. Uh, and uh, it's it's something that's actionable. Uh, but we've just, uh, like I said, it, it 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 triggered me a bit because it's just it's just really frustrating. It'd be as if we still had a drug problem in the Navy uh, because people decided it would be too hard to try to fight it, and here we are in 2023 having the same drug problem we had in 1978. You know, some things are fixable. It just takes focus and work and uh, telling people what you're doing. Yeah, and I, you know, and I'm not talking about uh, forgiving people who park in fire lanes or or situations where they're uh, actually endangering, right. you know, the, the the lives and safety of other people. But uh, we are just talking about how hard it is if for the average sailor to find a decent place to park near where his his work is, and his work is on a ship. And you know, if if the problem is we have too many ships in port at a time, then again, your solution, I think is a good one is let's move some of the ships <laughs> to other ports. And, you know, I know, I know Jacksonville now is home to a lot more ships than I, than I was aware of originally. They've, they've, you've got all kinds of good stuff uh, uh, working out of there now. So uh, I think that helps ease the burden in, in, uh, in Norfolk, I would hope for the, for the Naval operating base there. And the, and, you know, when, since we lost uh, Charleston and, and some of the other uh, bases, you, it, and more and more people into these into these uh, mega mega bases, and uh, I think that just makes life difficult for everybody. And you know, and, and and it's bad enough that you have to go through the gate situation, and that's usually a, a traffic yeah. jam nightmare too. So uh, it's it's complicated. It, it also goes into, I will always and forever uh, give great credit to Admiral Harvey, his, his last year on active duty. And this isn't the first time you mentioned it, but he, he came out in public talking about strategic home porting and the usual suspects poo-pooed him. Uh, but it, it all depends upon who you are talking to. You know, are you, if you take the short-term peacetime economic view of things, um, then you're going to do what we did, which is pack everybody in. And I, I'm looking for, but I have not found a better phrase than strategic home porting because I don't think it captures a lot of the secondary effects like you just mentioned, quality of life, quality of work. But you also have a situation, and we've reached, and let's use strategic. Um, you know, when people would say strategic home boarding, the concern was, well, it's a, you know, a big nuke. Uh, coming in and taking out your entire fleet at Christmas. But there's, we are in the age now of precision global prompt strike. Uh, and every half decade, more people are going to have that ability to do that, whether it's a conventionally tipped ballistic missile or it's a van load of 23-year-olds with uh, a bunch of drones dropping grenades 
off of the base going after the uh, <laughs> the ship and the fuel farms uh, on base. If you have your fleets better distributed, um, then you decrease your strategic risk risk of your fleet being concentrated in a few places that are very vulnerable. Uh, and it, uh, you know, one thing about everything in San Diego that also gives me the heebie-jeebies is uh, that's one of the most and we, we saw this a little bit up in Seattle when they had to shut down maintenance because of worries about earthquakes, is you're, you're one natural disaster away, which we know will happen. It may happen next week. It might happen in a thousand years. But at some point that uh, everything in San Diego uh, that floats is going to find itself transported about 200 to 1,000 yards inland uh, with about 15 minutes notice because that's what's happened a lot in history. Um, when you have your forces spread around both man-made and natural disasters, you, uh, you're you not one bad day away from having half the fleet you had the day before. Yeah, that's, you know, we'll just... The end of history uh, theory keeps coming back to bite us in the rear end. And... Um, well, because you know, I remember what remember Marshenko when he 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 had a, he was talking about red teams and all that stuff. You know, and I'm a big believer in, in in red teaming things and having guys think about you know what if I were a bad guy, what would I do? How would I how would I screw things up royally? And you know, a lot of these end up in, in novels these days. Uh, and and uh, you know, here's how you could screw. Th- royally if you did x and y but you know <laughs> just just stall a few vehicles in front of the the main gates at uh, at any of these naval bases and go okay <laughs> good luck you know and then and then cause something that would require the fleet to sortie and you'd you'd really have a you'd really have a quagmire and it wouldn't take all that much wouldn't take any super weapons no it's just it- it's a challenge, and it's ex- it's expensive, and we have you know lots of challenges of trying to meet um, threats that we let creep up on us. Uh, like I, there was a, I had to double check and triple check. He is still on active duty. I just found it surprising that such a position would be an active duty officer. You know, my ignorance. I'm not a DC hand, but um, U.S. Air Force Major General uh, Cameron Holt. He is the uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisitions. He put some nice figures out of things that you know we've talked about before that we all know intuitively. It's just hard to really quantify them. But when we've all seen the pictures, uh, Shugart and a bunch of other guys. I know Sal and uh, Macagliano again, <laughs> and John Catteron. They, they share all the pictures about these huge shipyards in China. Um, you know, building three or four carriers in parallel and five cruiser-sized DDGs in parallel. Um, and, and part of the reasons they're able to do that, not just because they have what, four times our population uh, and almost the same GDP as we do, is because of the nature of their economy, at least from the assistant deputy secretary of defense's level, is they're seeing that the PRC gets weapons built about five to six times faster than we do. Again, that's, and we've talked about before that our acquisitions program 
put the Ottomans to shame with its bureaucracy. Um, so it, it's kind of sh- sad that a, a communist country has a, a quicker cycle than we do, but they also perhaps aren't building as sophisticated items than we are, uh, which is another argument altogether. But also said that uh, rough, roughly the same capability, this is what really got me, the People's Republic of China for a dollar gets roughly the same capability that we get for 20. And, you know, quality versus quantity to the side, if you have a country that even has just half the GDP that you have, those numbers are um, interesting to plan against, which begs the question, uh, you know, a lot of things we were talking about before is, you know, don't go over the most efficient things, is if this conversation keeps going forward and those numbers are even within, you know, 80% accurate of, of what the actual numbers are, we're going to see an even greater argument of trying to get the most out of every buck that we have. That um, that math is really hard if you run it forward for another another decade of what we've already seen in the last decade. Uh, I don't I don't have an answer to that. Um, it's uh, th- those are some pretty uh, tough numbers to ponder. Yeah. I- once again, I mean, you, you, we keep talking like uh, like quality solves all the all the problems. I mean, the Chinese, among other things, they haven't they don't spend a lot of money on R and D because they just steal it from 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 the Western countries or they buy it from Western countries, you know. So they don't have the same costs built into their system that that we have because they don't have to invent the the uh, uh, spy type radar because they've got they've got that from stuff they've stolen or been given you know it's their their approach to things uh they don't have to they you know they they don't have to create new stuff they just have to get the the old stuff uh they can make changes to it but they can implement it a lot cheaper because they're not spending a long time in development so uh part of the question then is well they have a whole bunch of stuff that's and it may be I don't know, 75%, 60% as good as our stuff, but they got more of it. So as we were talking in the pre-show, you know, you can you can build uh, jets like the Germans did with the ME-262s, and, and you know, they still can get shot down by uh, uh, P-51s. It's, you know, because there were, there were a lot more P-51s than there were uh, ME-262s. And, you know, so there's a case where, a slightly lesser quality uh, uh, managed to beat uh, um, and a, a, a higher quality, if you will. The Germans, I'm not sure whether the 262 was the end all and be all, but it was it was an impressive aircraft for the time. And you know, we see the same thing with the Sherman tank against the Tiger tank, or the Sherman tank against the the, the uh, whatever the other German big tanks were. So. You know, the numbers make a make a lot of difference, and that was one of the ways the American way of war was. We would just outproduce the the other side, and uh, now we got a competitor who can, can outproduce us, and you know, so that's got to be a, a real wake up call, I would think, that uh, that we got to quit spending money on. Uh, I was looking at the fraud, waste, and abuse numbers. I, I get real excited about fraud, waste, and abuse, but when they start talking about uh, 
tens of billions or hundreds of billions of fraud in some of these COVID-19 uh, uh, giveaway programs we had. Uh, yeah. I get real excited because, you know, when you're talking $50 billion or $100 billion, you've got aircraft carriers, cruisers, destroyers, submarines, and up to yin-yang and that, uh, under that scenario. So, you know, are we ever going to reclaim that money? Probably not because a lot of it went to corrupt gangs and probably shifted overseas and all kinds of stuff. But, you know, that that sort of fraud, waste, and abuse really irks me. And when the, then they look at the military and go, well, you know, you guys, your house isn't clean either. Our, our house is a lot cleaner than that. Yeah, it's, I could do a lot with even $25 billion. <laughs> But you're right. I don't think we'll ever claw that back. So much of it has been absorbed into the underground economy. Uh, it's It's really disgraceful. I don't think a lot of D.C. really wants to pull the thread on that because – they won't like where a lot of those threads lead. But one thing about the, the challenge from China, and a lot of this, you know, the barn, the horse has already left the barn, but we can close the gate so that more horses don't get out of the barn. Uh, what I've liked so far that I've seen, unfortunately, uh, two of the really big advocates in the House of Representatives for the Navy were on the Democrat side of the House, Elaine Luria, who uh, – was defeated in the general, and Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin on the Republican side of the House, uh, who, you know, he's still in Congress, but uh, he is really good in a lot of areas, so leadership has repurposed him in another area. Uh, His select committee on China, I think he's he's heading in some directions I like. For instance, he's made, um, he pulled some really low-hanging fruit in a, a vineyard that I think is very, very uh, productive. And that's the non-obvious uh, national security threats that China has inside our own lifelines. He had a real interesting bipartisan uh, press conference maybe a week and a half ago uh, in New York City where they started to close down some of the Chinese police stations that they have in the U.S., uh, kind of a more direct version of what we uh, – they're slowly being shut down over the country. There, there's still a few. The Confucius Institutes, where uh, the, the Communist Party of China has the ability to threaten and intimidate Chinese nationals that happen to be in the U.S. That does lead you down a, a point that uh, makes some people uncomfortable, but it's just a, a plain reality. A lot of the advances that Chinese have in industry that competes with us and it transfers into the national security arena can be things direct, such as Loral Aerospace, uh, teaching them how to MIRV missiles by, quote, using, sending different, more than one satellite up on a rocket. That's called a MIRV. Uh, something directed at or indirect to the fact that for decades, uh, I know because I knew a couple of them when I was an undergrad back in the 80s. Uh, the people of the Republic of China send some of their best students to the United States to study. And they're not studying underwater basket weaving. They're not majoring in comparative French literature. Um, they're not majoring in interpretive dance. They're majoring in mathematics, physics, chemistry, engineering, all the hard majors, especially in our major research institutions at the graduate level. Um, 
people who've been to college graduations recently, uh, they've seen it. So we are, and these billets are finite. Anybody has people like me and their family who are applying for graduate level um, positions. Uh, there's a finite number. They're highly competitive. And we are having uh, people from the People's Republic of China studying in these dual-use technology areas that have family and connections back home that the Communist Party uses against them, and they take that knowledge base home. That's, uh, and they have some great universities over there as well. They send a lot of people to universities in the U.K., Germany, Italy, Spain, and Australia to do similar things. And if we are serious about the competition, we need to look at more than who has this number of ships and aircraft. We need to look at the intellectual infrastructure. And just like you wouldn't want American shipyards building submarines for the uh, People's Republic of China, why would we want Harvard, Stanford, John Hopkins, uh, UCLA, um, University of Texas at Austin, MIT, educating the people that are going to be developing quantum computers, aerospace engineering, chemical engineering, bioengineering, genetic engineering, and then having them take that education home as opposed to here. That's the next direction I would really like to see that committee take because it looks like they're going to open the aperture a bit to look at a variety of things that do control internally that can stop us from adding to what already is a significant China um, Communist Party challenge. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, – when we had Dean Cheng on talking about his book, uh, Cyber Dragon, I think it is, um, you know, he, he just he just scratched the surface of, of the way the Chinese approach uh, cyber warfare and and getting into and hacking. I mean, the Russians doing the same thing, uh, and so a lot of other countries do too. But China's got. I mean, they can th their solution to every problem is to throw a lot of people at it, and they, you know, they don't just have a, a team of a hundred or five hundred uh, folks trying to crack every uh, system they can in the U.S., they've got they've got thousands of people doing that, and uh, you know we we continue to to uh, do business. A lot of people continue to do business with China, and a lot of people that are doing business with China are people in our in our uh, computer cyber world, and you know that I hope Gallagher and 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 at all are are looking into that too because we've got to stop uh, pretending that uh, if we are nice to China, that they're somehow going to change their minds about, about how the world works and they're going to adopt the, the – they're, they're really going to come true believers in the uh, existing world order rather than trying to impose the, the world order they want to see, which puts China in the middle, in the middle kingdom as they used to be uh, a zillion years ago. Yeah, I think that – those people have, have lost the argument, though they're, they're still making it. Um, you can still see them out there, the, the soft China hand. The, the unfortunate thing is, um, and we've talked about it a little bit over here during the years, one of, one of my hobby horses, civil service reform at the Department of State. There are still a lot of people at the Department of State who don't know what time it is specifically related to China. And these are career people. You can't 
ask them to go um, pursue excellence in a different career field. They're stuck there, but they are a weight. Um, and we've seen this in the utter complete failure of our diplomats and the island nations of the South and Southwest Pacific. Recently, we started to push back on it, but we're a decade late on pushing back against what China has been doing there. Uh, they're a little more realistic, but they're embedded in our government's permanent uh, ruling nomenclature. There is still the uh, the nice China theory that, that has more weight than it, it really should. And there's kind of, even on with the China hawks, what I've been really frustrated with recently, because I think it's, um, I understand the argument, and if you wanted to pay my consulting fee, I could make it. But I, I don't think it survives the following question. And that is a lot of people are making the argument as we uh, are aiding, U- aiding Ukraine in their battle against the Russians, that somehow that effort is going to prevent us or distract us from trying to match the, the rising challenge from China. I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time, which will trigger some of those people because they don't like that phrase. But I, I think two things are true. One, what Ukraine needs to fight the Russians is uh, 80% a different set of tools than we need to effectively address what is an aerospace and maritime uh, challenge in the Western Pacific. And two, I'm old enough to remember, not just before 2014, but afterwards, how everybody was saying that, you know, the United States and her allies faced two major challenges. One was the People's Republic of China and one was Russia. Well, at a relatively small cost to what could happen if they win, we are keeping distracted and wearing down the warfighting capability of the Russians in a war they started uh, in a different country that if we really wanted to go back to 23 February of 2022 when the war started and we could look at the damage that's been done to the Russian military and more importantly, their ability to project power anywhere else but Ukraine for the next decade at least, you, I could argue even longer because of their demographics, then we should be doing both. Uh, and you can go into the, the moral and philosophical reasons why, but if you just want to t- play a very cold-eyed view of things, that um, Russia and China are always going to be getting in bed together anyway. I don't, I don't accept that argument that they would do it any less if, if Russia was able to take the territorial gains that they wanted from Ukraine. Uh, I think that uh, if you just want to take a cold look at the situation, uh, not only can we do both, we probably should do both, if for no other reason that um, I think you have a better odds of creating a more favorable strategic position for the United States, having just to look at, as opposed to 0.75 China, 0.25 Russia, if we can do 0.9 China, 0.1 Russia, uh, that would be to our gain. 
Yeah, it's kind of hard to argue with that. I mean, it's and you know, I'm 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 interested that China is willing apparently to uh, talk to the Russians about you know giving them some help uh, because I think China needs that distraction too. I think China China says, you know, if if uh, if we don't help out the Russians and they and they actually lose this war they started, uh, then uh, the West can turn their attention to us in a much stronger fashion. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend temporarily. So I'll, you know, let's look at what we can do to, to assist uh, the Russians. Same thing with Iran. I mean, Iran is obviously trying to provide and does provide uh, stuff to the Russians because they view the West as their enemy and the Russians are fighting the West, which, you know, we all thought Russia may someday become a Western country, but I clearly I'm, that that seems to be a bit out of the question these days. Yeah, I think we're uh, speaking of, yeah, I, yeah, we're a few generations from that, I think. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, so you talked about the Sea of Azov in, uh, in our pre-show thing, and I, I'm sure you want to mention that because that's kind of an important topic. Yeah, it, I... Um, <laughs> This is not the show of, of things that triggered Sal today, but uh, we've all seen it before and uh, we've talked about it before, but I would encourage everybody to look at um, a chart slash map, depending upon your confession, of the Black Sea, territorial sea, sea claims um, or identified stuff. And before 2014, not only did Ukraine have almost twice the seabed of the Black Sea than Russia did. It also had two-thirds of the Sea of Azov, based upon now, if Russia was able to maintain her territorial gains, she'd get 100% of the Sea of Azov and would, depending on where you drew the line, as opposed to Ukraine having twice the square, square footage of seabed in the Black Sea than Russia, it would have maybe 20% of what Russia have, even less than what Bulgaria has. Uh, and you know that has huge implications because everybody talks about aggressive war to, for taking land. And you know they're talking about dry land. But I think, especially in our modern era, that we need to think more about land is land, whether it's uh, covered with grass or covered with 100 meters of water. And the fact that all that seabed – there is are hydrocarbons, whether it's gas or oil. Uh, in a large parts of the world, we're on just almost to the point of making economically viable uh, mining the seabed for rare minerals. If everybody wants an electric or a hybrid car, we're going to have to do that because if you want to get those rare metals, you're not going to get it where we have it right now. Um, you also are athwart trade routes. Whether you know nations like um, Japan, nations like the UK, they can't feed themselves. They have to have ships moving food across water in order to be able to deliver foods. And you also have a Chinese tie-in. Um, one of our, um, our our leaders, leaders, <laughs> Freudian slip. One of my readers over on Twitter reminded me, and I think it may actually have been Sal Marcogliano with, the, uh, with my uh, earlier today, that the eastern part of the Black Sea 
is the terminus of China's rail links to Europe. So China does have an interest in whoever owns that seabed. And you look at the South China Sea, for reasons best explained by uh, people at the State Department and people who have been our Secretary of State for the last 20 years, we have allowed China to do a huge land grab in the South China Sea. Um, we, that's just, I encourage people, look, look at the globe, look at the map, look at what we have given them effective control over with minimal interference. And uh, people have all, I know regular listeners of, of MidRats have heard this for decades, but everybody says that the international system we have today is all based upon the post-World War II era of the United States Navy guaranteeing access to the open seas for everybody. Uh, that's not true anymore. That's not true by what's happened in the South China Sea. Um, that's also going to be true should um, Russia win, whatever definition of win that is, in Ukraine and is able to seize so much square footage of the uh, territorial waters in the Black Sea. And uh, that should give everybody pause. Uh, they need to stop looking just at land. You need to look at sea. Technology and trade is such that um, allowing hostile nations to grab territory at sea is, should be seen just as important and critical in the international world as somebody rolling, tank, rolling tanks across eastern Ukraine to seize those resources there. Uh, and, you know, you can say, well, what about the U.N.? <laughs> what about international law? Yeah, what about it? It's make, it makes no impact. Um, when, the when nobody respects international law and the United Nations has become a self-parenting organization, you have to go back to other forms of, uh, of enforcing international norms. That involves large gray ships and uh, leaders and nations that are willing to not step back anymore. That has its, its own problems. But that, that was one of the things I, I would like for people to look at more is look at these nations where you have these conflicts, what's happening with the area of sea, whether that's continental shelf, uh, exclusive economic zones, you know, what's there under the water, whether it's hydrocarbons, whether it's uh, metals and nodules on the seabed, whether it's fish or whether it's big natural gas, internet protocol, or other type of pipelines and cables that are going across it. It's just as important as what's happening ashore. It's just hard to visualize. Yeah, I know we're getting, we've already gone over, but there was a really good uh, <laughs> report put up by the Royal United Services Institute for Defense and Security Studies on uh, illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing trends. Um, and China, I don't, I don't remember exactly if they get mentioned there by name, but you know, all you need to do is follow the Chinese fishing fleet and realize how aggressive they are at claiming chunks of the of the world's food and uh, other uh, assets for themselves, and and they don't do it in the in the uh, let's save enough 
uh, seed corn for next year's crop. I mean, they're absolutely uh, devastating uh, fish stocks in the South China Sea, uh, and they're going because they've done that. They're they're in the far the far uh, world. You know, they're in the Pacific off uh, Galapagos in waters that probably are Ecuadorian or very close to Ecuadorian waters. Uh, it is. Uh, you know, a, a tragedy that they're allowed to do this. And as you say, international law is only as good as the enforcement mechanism. And the enforcement mechanism, uh, I, <laughs> unless the U.S. does it, I don't know of anybody who's going out there and, uh, or the U.S. supports people who, who, who will go out there and say, okay, enough is enough. You've got you've to knock this off. Uh, you're, you're ruining the world for the rest of us. And China is... They get away with a lot of stuff. They're, you know, they're they are viewed as a developing country for for the forgiveness of a lot of their environmental uh, damage that they do, and uh, it and you know they get they get away with the slave labor stuff that they've got going on. Uh, you know, we it's it all you know it's, you're, you're accusing us falsely. They get you know they they they're just outrageous in the way they lie about what they're actually up to, and it is. I keep saying this: the Chinese—they're bullies, and and they, you know, they, they lie in their own interest. There's nothing unusual about that in countries, but China is is uh, they need to be challenged on every front, and uh, you know that includes, as we said earlier, cutting off some of the the trade and other deals that they've been allowed to get away with, thinking that we were going to somehow co-opt them into the uh, the existing uh, uh, world order. And that's my speech for the day. And, <laughs> well, we both pontificated, which is pretty good for our, our free-for-all format. And uh, I guess we can wrap it up there. Uh, just to let everybody know, we have a couple of guests line up, but they just need to refine what uh, week best works for their schedule. Um, so uh, our next show, because uh, we could go another hour, we may do another free-for-all, but I think next week we have a 50-50 chance one of our guests will be able to make it. If not, we'll have to slide to the right some. So um, I think we've run out of our leave. So Midrats is going to be back for a while, uh, and um, it's always great to talk talk to uh, talk to you, Mark. And uh, it's great to see the folks in the chat room. And I appreciate everybody joining us for another edition of Midrats. And uh, until next time, hope everybody has a great Navy Day. Cheers. Yeah, thanks for being here today, everyone. Maloney wants to marry me and so leave the strand and pick a billy 